Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. This is your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by me. I wanted to do an episode that highlighted Rob Koifman, founder of Koifin, one of the fastest growing platforms for financial data and analytics to research stocks and understand market trends. Imagine a Bloomberg light with tons of high quality fundamental data, a powerful graph engine that can show it all clearly, and a user interface that doesn't look like it was built in the 1990s. Check them out. You won't regret it. Sign up for free at koifin.com. That's K-O-Y-F-I-N.com. I'm bringing you the episode to meet the man behind the product, the guy who had the foresight to bet on the business brew and one heck of a dude, an all-around mensch. So anyway, I, w- I want to do a to do a fun episode with my sponsors. I hope you guys enjoy it. I enjoyed getting to know Rob over the sponsorship, and it's been fun, and I'm really grateful that he took a shot on me. So here's his episode. I hope you all enjoy it. Please see the show notes for a promotional code that accompanies this episode. I've got the link in the show notes. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. All right. Take two. We're back. We're back. So, Rob, how you doing for the second time? I am doing well. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. Has anything changed in the last two minutes since we started talking? And then you had to shut down your browser. Um, just that my browser is working and uh, yeah, let's roll. This is good. So, dude, uh, you want to give some people uh, some background on yourself, how you founded Koifin and uh, where you came from? I love your story. Yeah, absolutely. So my story before Koifin is that I was on Wall Street for about 15 years. So I started in Goldman Sachs Research covering REITs, single stocks, um, and then moved to a group called Portfolio Strategy um, when my boss, who was the REITs analyst, David Costin, got promoted to be the portfolio strategist to replace Abby Joseph, Abby Joseph Cohen. Do you, do you know who that is? She is well-known, uh, a favorite of Barron's. A favorite of Barron's. But, so I feel like people, like, um, when did you start in the business? Uh, well, I guess I, am I in the business or am I just in entertainment? Well, <laughs> I'm not, I'm still not sure. <laughs> but the, the, the non-entertainment business, the investing business. Uh, I think that I've done this moderately competently for three years and I probably started learning five years ago, okay. like deep immersion five years okay, ago. Okay, cool. Cause, uh, so, so I think a lot of people who have started five years ago wouldn't know who she is. And she was a big deal, uh, kind of in the nineties, she was like the person in the nineties, um, and I remember our first lunch when we went out to lunch as a team, the waiter, when he saw the credit card, I was like, are you the Abby Joseph Cohen? And she's like, wow. yes, I am. <laughs> um, and so she was, cause she was on CNBC all the time and, and really famous. And she's a, you know, she's a, a really smart and well-regarded person, but um, my, uh, my team and my boss was brought in to kind of put a little bit more meat on the bones on her analysis. She was just a market, market forecaster doing a lot of top-down stuff and, we started doing a lot more bottom-up analytics on uh, valuation and sector rotation and relative value and themes. And that's sort of where I got my start. Um, what was Goldman like? Goldman was, uh, it was my first job. So didn't really know how to, how to compare it. Um, I'd say, um, I'd say like any 
company, there was a spectrum of, of uh, competence across people. Um, you know, you met people who were really smart, met people who were less smart, met people who were really nice, met people who were not so nice. Um, I'd say the one thing about Goldman um, that I've really come to appreciate since I left is um, they do a couple of things really well. Is one, they under-resource, so they really make people figure out how to use the current resource or limited resources to the best of their ability. So if you think about like Goldman's headcount, like relative to like a Citigroup or a JP Morgan or, or anything else, uh, they, they really under-resource. So that's kind of uh, really interesting and really smart on their part. Um, and the second thing is, I think they have a really good vetting process in terms of promoting people, in terms of vetting people. Um, and I think that process is probably a little bit better than other places so that you can't really climb up to the top unless you're you're really delivering value and really good. Um, and uh, like I, I worked at Citigroup as an example after that. Um, and Citigroup is great. And I'd say the difference between Citigroup and Goldman are is like, you know, 95th percentile versus 88th percentile or something like that. But those small differences are, uh, I think they may, they, they, they matter a lot and they, uh, they compound. And so at Citigroup, you did have way too many people. You did have people at the top that were like, how the hell are these people at the top? Uh, so yeah. those are. Well, it becomes political, right? And uh, if the culture isn't a meritocracy, it can, can infect other areas, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. And, and the other thing about um, Goldman is a lot of, uh, most of the senior people there are homegrown. They rarely kind of hire um, people from the outside on the, on the super senior level, on the MD and partner level. Um, and that's not the case in a lot of other organizations. And then what happens is when you bring in someone from the outside, they sort of start bringing their entire network from the outside and you just have constant culture dilution, which is, uh, yeah. which, which is not that good. So uh, that's kind of going on at Wells Fargo, but the different, uh, like to totally different. Sharf came in and he was part of, uh, he kind of grew up with Jamie, uh, Jamie Dimon. And then you've seen he's brought in like just the whole, the whole C-suite basically got waxed and the board turned over. And uh, I think for there, it's probably for the best. Yeah, sometimes. But it is interesting to see how like it, it was like a true cleaning of house. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes it is for the better. Yeah. Well, but, you know, if you got a good organization, you keep the people around. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it just organizations are just always like very political and there's a lot of obviously personal relationships and, and rivalries. So um, I think it's I think it's pretty I, I think it's just like very human nature. If uh, you bring in someone senior, they'll, they'll want kind of the people they trust uh, around them or not even like maybe in addition to trust, just people that they're used to working and have chemistry and um, stuff like that. How, uh, how to have, how have you done that at Coifin? Like, how are you surrounding <clears throat> yourself with people that, uh, you want to build the organization with and making sure that you, uh, instill a good culture in your own, own organization? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I think that's something that I'm really kind of learning, um, because I've never had to institute a, a, a culture in a company. Um, and it's something that um, I'm really trying to understand what's the most effective way to do that. Um, I think I, I think kind of like my set of values are probably a little bit different than the set of values of, of, of other, well, they are different than the set of values of other people. And 
Um, I just sometimes always assume that my set of values are just going to be the set of values of others. Um, and so as we've grown, I, I've put a little bit more emphasis in, in terms of narrowly defining specific things that, that we would either avoid or look for. Um, and the risk there is that you start naming these values and they just it just becomes sort of empty in terms of like saying like, hey, we're all ambitious and teamwork and start naming these values that it's just like, okay, they, they don't really mean anything. <laughs> yeah, it's just like word salad. <laughs> just word salad. It's just like stuff to put on your website. Um, and I think for me, I'm starting to realize what, what makes uh, me productive, what makes other people that I work well with productive, um, what kind of qualities and what kind of qualities to avoid and, and, and thinking uh, about how to um, institutionalize that a little bit more. So um, for us, it's really, um, for me, for us, it's really having, um, a culture where you can, uh, debate and discuss, um, a lot of different things. <clears throat> and now that, um, our team is growing, um, I think the Jeff Bezos, um, uh, philosophy of kind of disagree, but commit at the end, and you're going to have disagreements all the time, but you just need to commit at a certain point and make sure everyone's rolling in the same direction. That's like one of these things that sounds pretty cliche. It's like, obviously you do that, but um, it's it's it, it's like a value that you really have to instill in people because otherwise, uh, you know, not everyone understands that you can, you know, if you disagree, some people think, hey, I disagree, so I'm just going to do something else. And that's something that, that we have to sort of emphasize a little bit more. So let's take a, a step back. You're at City, and then you go to a hedge fund, right? Um, I was, yeah, I was at Goldman for about six years. Um, I moved over to the prop trading desk in London, um, and I was there for about a year. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so that was uh, my. What was living in London like? Living in London was um, so. This was 2000. I moved there in January of 2008. Um, and so it was an interesting time. It was kind of like right as the market was about to tank. Um, London was uh, much different than New York. I loved living in New York and uh, London has a lot of good things about it. So it's like in the middle of Europe, has a little bit more um, of a European mindset, very international, very diverse. Um, but it's it's a very old city, so and, and you feel it is and, old. and you feel that so like um, all the buildings are these like really old buildings. You don't have these uh, kind of doorman buildings that you have in New York. So I was living in a in a in a walk up and my sink and I was you know I was working on Wall Street, so I was paying pretty decent rent. Like I remember my sink had a hot and cold like different spout, and that was like super like the most annoying thing in the world that I had to like turn a little bit hot a little, mix and mix water. water kind of like in your hands. And I was like, God damn it. Um, and then, uh, I didn't come here. For I, this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> bring me, bring me back where there's like a warm mode. Um, and then, uh, uh, how is your air conditioning over there? There, Yeah. No, no air conditioning, but you don't, you don't really need it. Um, Oh, I don't know. I've been there in the summer a couple of times. I've needed yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That like I I don't understand to any European listeners. Like you guys got to get on ice, cold beer and like big time AC. These are these should not be like uh debatable topics, I don't think. I just think there's a way the world should be and those should be. Yeah. It. I ice water I feel very strongly about. It's kind of like right. getting warm water in a in a glass is just very strange. 
It makes no it sense. Makes... It's like part of the the refreshment is the cold water hitting my my yeah. mouth. What are we yeah. doing? And you figure once they tried it, they would realize the the right way to drink water. But yet they're set in their ways. I like how you said that because it is the right way. I, I don't want to have a debate about my water is as good as yours. No, cold water is correct. Absolutely. Um, and the, the other thing about London at the time is it was super expensive. Um, and so the pound was just kind of the way that the currency uh, worked out. It was just a very expensive um, cost of living. So I remember like buying a shower curtain and it was 50 pounds at like the cheapest store there. And, that was it. That was a like hundred hours when you were translating it back then. So, uh, not not very pleasant in terms of cost of living, but really great. You get around on the tube there, right? You get around on the tube, which is yeah, it's uh, really clean. Um, really kind of like connects the city nicely. Um, has the has the cloth seats, uh, so it has like uh, cloth seats, which are really that's that's not a that's kind of a, we would not do that in America. Would, we, it would be yeah. I, it would be very be dirty. Very, I mean, it's pretty dirty in London. I think it's kind of um, very old school. But yeah, that's uh, that's a very uh, weird thing that they have. I enjoy that city. I mean, like a, I've only been there a couple times, but I think it's very cool. It's very pretty. Um, I but my most vivid memory was taking a cab somewhere and not asking how much it cost before I went there, and then I was like, well, now I have no more money for the rest of the day. Thank you very much. I, amateur mistake. And the uh, the cab drivers there are just you know they have to like study for like two years to pass their their cabbie test to like know every little uh, uh, nook and every little street and London's like a maze. There's no grid system. Um, Imagine how pissed they'd be when Uber gets released. I, right? Yes. It's like <laughs> fuck you guys. Yeah. Well, that, well, yeah. When and when the phone just tells you where to go instead of like memorizing eight million streets. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Obsolescence, which is what you're doing to some financial platforms, might I add. Wow. Great segue. You like that? <laughs> so that was good. But... That's why I'm a pro. <laughs> um, we, we are, we, we are uh, definitely innovating on kind of the way that things have been done in the past. So what, ha- like, what gives you the idea for Coifin? You, you were at a hedge fund and... You, I mean, when you and I have talked in the past, you've used technical analysis and you've given me a little bit of your, your framework for how you see the world, but like kind of what, um, where were you when you drafted up the idea of Coifin and how did this all like come together? Yeah. So, um, I was, I was at a hedge fund. Um, I left to kind of look for another job. Um, I started investing and trading on my own for the first time kind of in my career, whereas before I had a lot more restrictions in terms of what I could do personally, I was always doing it for the firm. Um, and it was the first time I had to pay for the resources myself. And I had a, uh, you know, a decent budget to pay for, for what I wanted. And I had something in, in mind, um, but I didn't want to pay for kind of a Bloomberg. I wanted something lower. So let's say I wanted to pay a couple of thousand dollars a year. I didn't want to pay 25 grand a year. And then be stuck in a two-year commitment. I was like, I don't know if I could do that. Um, I just started really researching all the tools out there. So um, this was uh, 2016 and just had all this uh, innovation and and all these really cool things happening in other verticals and other software verticals. Um, And in finance, like you use the, the, the platforms and you use the resources and they were all created 20, 30 years ago and they haven't really been updated. 
and so what are you using when you're coming out before koi fin exists yeah so um i i basically started um i got a cap iq trial i got a faxa trial um dude those are every bit as expensive as uh bloomberg though about half Aren't about they? half, about half. Yeah. is it so Oh, I didn't realize that Cap IQ was. I, I thought Cap IQ was more expensive than that. At that time, uh, Cap IQ was about um, I think twelve or fourteen thousand dollars a year. Huh. There you have it. Um, you and shows what I know. <laughs> and you know the, the other thing I figured, um, like I had used interactive brokers before, and I love interactive brokers because it has access to everything. You could trade anything on there. Um, and I was like, you know what? I'm sure Interactive Brokers has a bunch of analytics tools that I could use to come up with ideas and, and do what I need. And it's just like, it, it's it's one of the worst, poor, most poorly designed systems in the world. And it's just super difficult to navigate and to orient yourself and to find anything. Um, and it's 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 built by it's built by software developers. It's not built by someone who knows what investing is. It's it's kind of like built by someone who's just like, look, the data's right there. You just have to like hit that and search for it, and it's called that. And as an investor, you're like, that doesn't uh -huh. make any sense. Why would I know to do that or uh, have any idea how to do that? So it's all kind of like these little uh, app windows that are made in Java. That it's very clear that whoever created that had never invested in their life. It's interesting that you say that. I have not used interactive brokers. Most of the people that I talk to that do, they say the exact same thing. They're like, the customer service is really not that great. The platform like is not that intuitive, but they all like the product and they're not going to leave. Because the product does uh, what it does very well, and, that, and that's give you access to, to trading, to uh, invest in whatever security you want at the best price. But if you yeah. said like, hey, um, how's the portfolio analytics on, on on interactive brokers? Like once you have your portfolio, you just wanna see like your, let's say some basic valuation measure or how it performed over time or do some scenario analysis or look at the sector breakdown or like anything that goes beyond that core competency, which is buying something at a reasonable price. It, it just, it doesn't exist. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I got to try that out because uh, I do want some access to international stuff and uh, they seem to be best at that. But may maybe I'm not right on that. They're, and they're really good at international stuff. So you could trade any market um, and they have um, uh, if you're trading cross asset in terms of options or futures or currencies, uh, this is like a, a commercial for international brokers. Uh, they, that's what we're just talking. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what do you do when you, like when you were using them, do you do stuff like that? Uh, like in, invest in all those things that I just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm definitely like, a, a, a like who's Rob is an investor. Yeah. So, uh, Rob is an investor is a mix of, uh, stocks, like fundamental, uh, very kind of, uh, a basic fundamental analysis, high level, uh, options really like overlaying options and thinking about like, can something be expressed in the options market um, uh, more with more leverage or kind of like a better risk reward. Um, and then having just a macro view, having a top-down view on what's going on, uh, whether it's where we are in the, in the economic cycle or which sectors are performing or uh, what rates are doing or what FX is doing and just having, making sure I have some kind of view or just understanding what's going on there. 
Do you know what I like about the Quafin homepage a lot is that you can see like global yields everywhere. You got commodities right there. I, I, it makes sense to me why you've oriented the page in that way, because most other sites that I go to, it's like, this is the, you know, S and P Dow and NASDAQ. Right. And it's like, okay, cool. That doesn't give me any view of what's going on everywhere. So you can kind of see like your top down, uh, bent or whatever in the way that you design the product. I think that's cool. Yeah. I, you know, definitely there's a, there's a big influence on, on what I want to see, or, uh, that's kind of like the starting point. And then we'll, um, take into account kind of what our users are asking for and, and uh, build stuff that, that we get feedback on. Uh, but it's definitely the starting point is definitely kind of my own trading style and my own process and, and looking across the market. But even today, like, um, you know, you're, um, you're very focused on equities and, and you're a very fundamental investor, but you know, if, if people start or, or um, your, you know, people, investors start talking about yields or yields are, are a big problem or a big topic of conversation, you want to look that up. You don't want to go somewhere else and, and start you know digging around. Um, or, you know, if China, if something in China is blowing up and you just want to see kind of like, Hey, I just want to put that into context versus my own holdings or, just see what it looks like over time. Um, you should just have access to that information. And that's that's something that Bloomberg does really well. And so out of all the platforms that I've used before, um, I think Bloomberg is the, is the best one. Um, I think Bloomberg is the best one because it has that all-in-one data offering so that you can look, if you know how to look it up, you can look up anything in the world on Bloomberg. Uh, yeah, but you need to know how, and that is not the easiest thing in the world. No, but but once you once you learn kind of like how to search the FLDS codes and kind of like the 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 top pages, you know, it, it, there's definitely um, there's definitely a, a ramp up and and a, 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 a learning curve for Bloomberg. Um, but once you learn the shortcuts, how I mean, how fast can you just access stuff by just typing stuff? Right? That was like yeah. Bloomberg came up with all these innovations that were in the 80s and 90s that are now like other companies are like, oh, we have shortcuts on the keyboard. Like that's an innovation. And Bloomberg has been doing that for like, you know, 40 years or um, or instant messaging or data visualization. Um, so they've, they've really, I, I think they've nailed a lot, a lot of good things. I think Bloomberg is, is the best, uh, most useful platform out there, at least kind of like the way I look at things. Um, and the other thing they did really well is focus on the analytics. So they provide a really good layer of data but then you could graph stuff. You could really analyze um, using their charts and their tools, and that's that's not that like in Cap IQ and facts that you can't really do that. Those are much more like primitive um, uh, uh, platforms for that for those types of analytics. I think Bloomberg does does that really well, and that's something that we've tried to uh, build on is is really focusing on the data visualization and graphing part. I was going to say, do you know somebody else that does it real well as Coifin? <laughs> Because like I'm looking right now at the market dashboard, right? And I like how if I click on U.S. sectors, I I, uh, I like how, I don't know, man, to me, the way that you use visuals, the way the colors pop and the way that you just like sort of uh, default to graphs, it may, it, the, it's a very smart way to just like default people into visual representation. I think, uh, I don't know if what I'm saying, if I'm expressing it exactly the way that I want to, but it, it makes everything really easy to see out of the gate. Yeah, I think I, I think that's, you know, that's something that we, we definitely focus on and try to do. So 
there's there's sort of kind of three paths on Coifin. Uh, the first path is uh, being able to browse dashboards that we create for you. Um, and because there's just so much financial data out there, sometimes you don't know what you want to look for. You just want to kind of just like see what's going on in a particular area. So that's exactly what the homepage is for, to just kind of orient yourself in different markets and what's uh, performing well today, what's not performing well today. And same thing on the sector page. So um, like if you didn't have this sector dashboard and I'm sharing my screen right now, so I'm not sure if if, uh, if people could see this on, on the podcast. I hope they I can. Hope, yeah. I think they see, I think they but, can. I think they see Bill, Rob, yeah. and Rob's screen. But if it doesn't work that yeah, well, yeah. then uh, you know that's that's my technical problem. It's not Rob's. Yeah. Uh, everyone, you have to visualize what I'm saying in your head. So just um, so 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 kind of like the, the sector dashboard that we build is just kind of like a way to take all the uh, major U.S. sectors, all the subsectors to be able to sort them by different performance uh, metrics, like one day change or one week change and one year change, um, and then be able to graph those on the right to be able to kind of like visually see uh, what's what's kind of performing, what's trending so that, you know, we, we all sort of know energy is doing well this year over the past year, but kind of like breaking this down in one dashboard and you don't have to build this yourself. You kind of get this really nice orientation and see where everything is in perspective. And, and this will give you a really, either one, a sense of what's going on, or two, maybe lead you to ask questions and, and get new ideas um, in terms of certain um, uh, certain trends that are happening in sectors or countries or factors. Uh, like the factor dashboard is, is one that's really used by um, a lot of our investors and they're just kind of like seeing um, how the different factors look over time. Um, and obviously everyone has some factor exposure. It's really hard to uh, neutralize factor exposure out. So I think it's really helpful to just be able to see like which which factors are trending, how they're performing, so that um, your portfolio, your investments don't get a, don't get caught up into one of these vicious factor uh, rotation cycles that occur every couple of months. Small cap value with a big year, they just had to wait for a while. Small cap value. Let me pull that up. Yeah, fifteen point five percent so far. Yeah. Uh, doing better than doing, I mean, value in general is doing okay. Value. This, uh, this is the year of value. Which, yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, uh, we'll see if it sticks. I know a lot of value people hope it will. Um, time will tell. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's due. So if we look at the 10 year performance of, I'm just pull up this, uh, just do growth versus value. That's. <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to laugh like that. It's funny too. Cause like I talk to people all the time about this specifically my man, Toby and, uh, and Jake Taylor, uh, on this value after hours show that we do, but man, like you look at how those, those two things, uh, factors sort of traded in tandem, right. From, I mean, not, not in tandem, but they, they were like lines that crisscrossed till, you know, 2012 to 2017 and then boom. Yeah. It's just like alligator jaws. Yeah, big, big widening out. And if I just, if we expand this and look at it. So kind of, you know, kind of interesting. Wow. Wow. That is really interesting to look yeah. at. Yeah. So you had. What if we go further back? Can we go further back? You know, this, this is based on the ETF. So this is yeah. since 2000. So 2000. Look at how much growth underperformed from 2000 to 20. 
even 2017. So it's kind of interesting. If you take if you take 2000 as your starting point, we're just back to where we started, right? So actually, yeah, <laughs> we're just getting back to normal. Normal being 2000. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, which which we can debate the assumption in that statement. But that's interesting stuff. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that I think when you see it, it's much easier to internalize than when you're reading it. And that's what I really like about what you built. Yeah, yeah, d definitely kind of like being able to visualize it and being, being able to put it in a perspective of, of a long-term trend um, helps. So you know, we, we have a bunch of these market dashboards that we put together, whether it's factors or global yields or commodities. Um, and very similar structure. We just sort of lay out all the assets there and you can sort them, you can visualize them, you can really um, see what's going on. Um, and then we have uh, uh, a couple of analytics functions that are that are pretty useful. So for those people that love charts, we have a function called lots of charts where you select an index or an ETF and just look at all the charts from that index. So basically um, uh, let's select like um, maybe the ARC ETFs. So this is the ARC ETF and just being able to see uh, what's trending over the past kind of five years, being able to sort this by market cap or by performance um, and just orienting yourself on, on the different trends. And, you know, as you mentioned before, I think technical analysis is, is super useful. Uh, it's something that's become part of my uh, toolkit uh, that I use uh, in addition to fundamental analysis. So I love like this is a function I created for myself because I love running through charts and seeing where the trend is up, where the trend is sideways, and when the trend is down, and where the trend is turning. And this is a really effective way to do that. What are uh, some of your favorite technical patterns to look for? Uh, um, so my technical, you know, you know, I'm the way that I started thinking about technical analysis is I went through this kind of like phase of thinking technical analysis is, is total bullshit and just like laughing at people that would use it. Um, then I went through a phase of, of understanding or learning why it could be useful and, and having um, a bunch of experiences that taught me that technical analysis could be useful. And then trying to use all these different indicators and getting really specific about to like, am I using RSI or MACD and what level? And then kind of like the final phase of where I am now is, is really kind of simplifying technical analysis and just saying like, technical analysis is all about identifying a trend and a reversal of a trend. And so my favorite things to do are just identifying uh, support and resistance levels, and then seeing when uh, companies or assets break those. And that's a that's a kind of like a huge signal to me. And as, as you know, as uh, kind of, I think a lot of investors know the, the price moves before fundamentals. So it's always interesting to me when price is moving and the fundamentals haven't caught up or the fundamentals haven't shown that. Um, and that's like the first inning of a trend or the second inning of a trend. And those are kind of the most interesting uh, trends or interesting traits to think about. Hmm. Uh, for those that don't know, MACD is moving average convergence <laughs> divergence and RSI is relative strength indicator. Um, the uh, you're, you're a resident technician here. Dude, I got I got deep into dojis and reversals and all types of stuff, bull flag patterns and I you know, I kind of um I kind of like technicals. I don't use them a lot. Um but I don't think that they're as hocus pocus as a lot of my fundamental brethren might uh dismiss or you know. So like I guess that one of the things that I um 
I, I think I would be more apt to use technicals if I was buying uh, some of like the higher, higher, um, mo- like higher valued momentum names. I think that I would probably have a little bit shorter uh, leash on, mm-hmm. which maybe doesn't make any sense, right? Because you probably want to just buy those near long term trend lines uh, from a technical standpoint and just let them go. Um, but like, you know, I don't know. I talk about this fucking company all the time, but like curate, uh, I mean, when the earnings came out, it, it got destroyed. I, I certainly would have gotten blown out uh, if I had some sort of technical stop loss. Um, so like, look at that move on earnings recently. Yeah. So, so that like clearly breaks support and then you're out. But I actually kind of like the fundamentals there. So like, that's why I, I don't use them as much here. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with you. You're not going to like this chart, especially the long term. <laughs> um, I, I think I think this chart is, you know, I think the, this chart is kind of like if you look at it over the past two years, it's definitely it, it looks like it's consolidating sideways. So I don't think like there's obviously short term, it's trending down, medium term, it's trending up. I think you're absolutely right. If you have purely technicals and the stock kind of breaks, uh, you know, this support level, you're stopping out here and sounds like you didn't or, or, you know, uh, you added, or I'm not sure what you did, but you know, it, it rallied. I almost threw up. That's what I almost <laughs> did. Thank you. Um, so you threw up. It was a terrible day in my household, yeah. but I had it figured out by the end of the day. But, uh, yeah, at noon I was supposed to record a podcast with somebody and I told her, I said, I, I actually can't record with you right now because I don't have a clear head. Uh, so I learned for those that that like to uh, know what it might feel like when a fairly concentrated position goes down thirty percent a day. I got to live that. That was fun. Man, that's yeah. That's that's uh, I, I that's you know, it's 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 amazing that you have kind of like the fundamental framework or you thought about it or whatever kind of analysis you did. Um, I'm sure it was a it was a rough day, but it's all part of the game, I guess. Um, well, you know what it was. I was just sitting there like, what am I missing? Yeah. Right, because I do, I, do, I do fundamentally, like it's really weird to have these two competing thoughts in your head, but I at one on one hand think the market can be completely irrational at times, and I also have like massive, the longer I do this, the more I have respect for the market. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, think, I think there's kind of like, um, I don't think it's black and white in terms of technicals. I think you just have to use it as part of your arsenal, and, and sometimes you... Um, like there's been times where there's been just these technical patterns, which are super strong, uh, whether it's a breakout or, or a breakdown, uh, and then it just reverses the next day or, or in a couple of days. And you're like, ah, and, and technical people, uh, like to, like to call that like a bull trap or a bear trap. And it's just their hmm. way of like saying like, Hey, this just kind of like goes against what technical analysis is supposed to say, but it, there's, there's no right or like you're absolutely right. There's kind of like any technical framework. Um, you could find examples in history where it didn't work, whether, you know, a head and shoulders pattern with, um, you know, with with a lot of these growth names, there were just a bunch of breakdowns in June and July and just kind of recovered and continued on. So, um, you know, uh, I think marrying technical analysis and fundamental analysis and other things, I don't think like one is the ultimate answer. I just, for me at least, using um, them in conjunction and combinations is really effective. And 
Like, so the, the, maybe I could tell you like a, a story of how I started using technical analysis. Yeah. So at Goldman Sachs in 2006, one of the things that our clients wanted at the time were short ideas where like we have massive leverage to the upside and we're long a lot of uh, different names. And this is when a lot of funds started doing swaps and baskets and putting on leverage. And there was, there was like, it was really hard to short anything because everything was going up and there were LBOs and it was, it was just very difficult to find shorts. And so what I was tasked to do was find a framework to, to identify shorts. It's like, what makes a good short? Like, how Hmm. can we identify a good short? So I basically took all this data that we had, which was all equity data going back for 40 years. And I started looking for what makes a, a, what is a short? Is it the opposite of a good long, or is there something about a short that's different? Like, um, hmm. and so I started doing all this kind of like data analysis and all this back testing. And the first result I got, which was very strange, is that the strongest factor to predict performance was past performance. And I was like, this is like really weird. Like, I was like, how? Like, I was expecting valuation or margins or earnings or whatever it is. And the strongest factor that I was finding was. Uh, past performance. And um, I'm sure kind of a lot of people right now are like, oh, you found the momentum factor. I didn't know about the momentum factor at the time. I was just like doing the the, anal- the analysis and the back test. And I was like, this is crazy that previous performance is the number one predictor of future performance. Um, and I, there was someone sitting uh, like next to our group and he was an academic. Um, this guy, Charlie Himmelberg, he was running credit. And he was like, oh, that's the momentum factor you discovered. And I'm like, what? Um, <laughs> Over what time frame is this valid for that you determine? This is valid. Uh, so it's uh, one month, uh, you know, uh, three month performance, six month performance, twelve month performance is more uh, is a very strong uh, predictor of indicator uh, of, the of the next three months, six months, twelve months. Yeah, uh, that makes and, sense. And and the second strongest was uh, was valuation. Was kind of like thinking about uh, uh, you know high valuation, low valuation. But it was it was a much weaker signal. So even though statistically significant, it was much weaker. Um, and then the other thing that that I found was uh, uh, if you actually, you know, that was, then I started asking myself like, why do people look at fundamentals? Like, if fundamentals like don't predict what's going to do well and what's not going to do well, uh, well, future fundamentals do. Historical fundamentals don't. So if you actually run, if you just buy the stocks that are growing the fastest, or buy the stocks where margins are the highest, or Anything historical doesn't predict the future. But if you actually shift the analysis and say, if I can actually buy the stocks with the biggest margin improvement, with the prospect of margin improvement, or buy the stocks with the biggest prospect of earnings growth or sales growth, then then that's that's a very strong factor. So that kind of like tells mm-hmm. you like that's what fundamental analysts need to do is they need to predict the future, not the past. Um, yeah. and that's that's I think something that um, you know, um, a lot of people, at least when they're starting out in this, is they look at historical whatever fundamentals and they forget that their job is to, like the bottom line is you need to predict the future. And sometimes it's agreeing with the market and sometimes it's disagreeing with the market or expectations. Yeah. Um, so that was like my first experience to be like, wow, there is information and in price and just something that kind of um, uh, sat with me. And then the second thing is um, I was in I was in Caxton, which is a macro hedge fund in 2000, uh, 2008, late 2008, 2009. When I joined Caxton, um, it was the day that the Bank of England uh, lowered rates by uh, by like 100 or 150 basis points. It was October of 2008. 
And uh, the first day I started Caxton was the day that uh, basically everyone on the floor started jumping up and down because they had made like $2 billion on that trade. They were just uh, long receivers. And uh, basically it was a huge macro trade that rates were gonna go down. And the ECB had raised rates earlier that summer. So that wasn't priced into the market. And literally I was like, this is great. Like, I love this place. Like, um, it was it was like the big- Did you walk around and take yeah, credit? Yeah. Like, you're welcome, I joined, yeah. you can all win yeah, now. Correlation is causation, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so I was just like, wow, these these guys are, are really, really smart. And uh, they made a lot of money in 2008. And beginning of 2009, um, they, they were just like, everyone was just super bearish at the firm, just like the world is gonna end and just credit mm-hmm. and just all these pictures and analyses and just the government debt's about to explode and all this other stuff. Um, and we had all these bearish trades on and we, we were like, I was doing work on the banks and I was like, wow, these banks are screwed. There's no way they're gonna get out of this. Like we should short more. So like these you know, banks are trading at like half book value and I'm like, we should short more. And, um, and in April, like uh, in March stuff bottomed in April stuff started rallying. And basically the the CIO uh, of Caxton, Andrew Law, pulled me to his office. He's like, the technicals are all turning bullish. And I'm like, technicals, what are you crazy? Like the world's gonna end. He's like, hmm. he's like all the banks, all the retailers, they're all starting to act bullish. And I was just like, he's like, you have to learn technicals. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, that's like, that's beneath me. Um, and, huh. and basically like made me really understand like the market is saying something that disagrees with, with my fundamental view, our fundamental view. And we need to understand that or why that is and what's going on. Um, and that was when I really started reading books and really started to think about kind of like what it means for like what technicals apply. And, you know, the market is always moving before fundamentals, whether it was like some what, 2007 when the banks and the home builders were selling off for a year or 2009 when, when things bottomed before the fundamentals or even in COVID of April of 2020 when just everything started rallying very strongly and everyone was like sort of scratching their heads and being like, this is crazy. The world's going to end. Why are things yeah. rallying? And then six months later, it was like, all right, so COVID isn't as bad as we thought and all the stimulus and recap and all this other stuff. So I, again, I don't think, I don't think technicals are uh, like, I don't think that's the only thing you should look at, but I think I, I have a healthy respect for them really trying to understand like, what, is the market saying something that, I'm not seeing or something that's going to be changing in the next six months. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I think in 2020, uh, I, I remember when the Fed Zuka came out and, and that bounce was pretty nuts. And then I was kind of waiting for a sell-off and it never came. Uh, and, you know, thankfully I, I had allocated, uh, some capital to equities prior to that, but, um, yeah, it would have been, it would have been nice to get a little. I probably could have gone down in the quality spectrum once that all started to rip and really. But that's hindsight. I was worried about survival. I wasn't worried about making as much as humanly possible. So uh, that's fine. Yeah, but it is interesting, right? The market is super smart. The, the 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 market the market is smart, and I I I don't like I've always thought about this, and I don't know the answer. Like I don't understand how a bunch of people who don't know what's going to happen in the future start uh, like there's information in that and the market has some kind of uh smart predictive uh abilities um like like you know everyone trading rates right now and treasuries are confused why yields are going down and it's like the market is saying something but it's like yeah will you pull up the the yield chart yeah, sure. 
Can you, like, like a, I don't know, like, what do you think is good to pull up? Like the 10 year? And... Yeah, 10, 10 years is good. Yeah. So I think people are just like very confused why inflation's ripping and, and yields are, you know, sort of like trading sideways. Um, and that, that was kind of like the same confusion in like if I pulled the 20 year chart. Um, I remember when I was, um, you know, in research at Goldman 2006, 2007, when yields started going up, like inflation was ripping here. Um, and people yeah. were like, what, what is, you know, th- this was the whole conundrum. Like, why are yields so low? Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's information, like there's information that the 10-year yield is not going up. And I think the market's just implying that whenever the Fed has to raise rates, the economy is going to slow markedly. So this is, this 10-year yield is trying to predict or trying to understand what the inflation and the nominal growth outlook will look over the path, over the next 10 years, not over the next year. Um, and I think there's just so much leverage in the system that once we start taking away that that stimulus, that's going to slow down the economy pretty, pretty dramatically. So I think there, there is a lot of value in kind of like just watching the 10 year yield and what it's doing. And with, without even having a prediction, I think there's a lot of value to that. Can you on uh on the platform, I, I don't know how to do this, but can you do a 210 spread? Yeah, so we have um, we have so you can do a spread, but we also have the <clears throat> the yield curve. So you have a yield curve, ten year, two year. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Interesting. And um, so the other uh, so, so the yield curve is, is kind of like on a on a macro level, really interesting because when the yield curve is is steepening, you basically have reflation. You have um, kind of traditional inf- inflation dynamics playing. And whenever the yield curve is flattening, you have you have the opposite, and that sort of uh, affects. Oops. Um, I think that affects kind of a lot of different assets. And I actually think the yield curve has peaked. Like I think this is probably the peak of, of what we're going to see in the cycle. Um, and um, the reason I say that is when I look at like the yield curve uh, versus the ISM, and I'll just pull this up here. And I'm just going to make these on two separate charts. So if you sort of go back and, and think about these cycles, as the ISM bounces in sort of uh, 2009, 2002, and these yield curves, uh, th- this yield curve sort of tops out and makes this round the top, that's sort of where the peak is. And I think we've had the same thing. Like I think the ISM has peaked here, it's bounced back. And I think the the mm. the top of the yield curve has already been set. And so I think going forward, you're going to see their sideways or, or down yield curve. And I think that matters a lot for kind of a growth and assets. Um, and you've already started to see the, if you look at the yield curve for uh, kind of 30 year, uh, two year. And we put that on a separate chart Oops, here. Like that's been, that's been like that, that's not moving sideways. That's flattening pretty dramatically. And so, the, yeah. the the really long end, the thirty year versus two year, has been flattening, um, pretty pretty obviously since uh, kind of March of this year when the the Fed posture started to change, and so I think the ten year, two year is gonna um, is gonna follow that that pattern as well. So like just watching you click through this and and pull those charts up, and then you're like, I want to put it on a different chart, and you you know like one click, it's all very intuitive. Like, how did you, I mean, you, your background is not software engineering, right? How did you make this vision become reality? 
Um, yeah, so one is I have a, a, a great, talented team. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it's it's been kind of like luck to find a good team that I have uh, today and, and really building on that. Um, the other thing is I started, um, I, my, my first job at Goldman, my, my boss, David Costin, he was super into data visualization and charting. And so his reports, when we would create kind of the reports, we would focus a lot on how we're presenting the charts and what we're showing in the charts and kind of like what colors we were using. Um, and that's totally different than what everyone else is doing on Wall Street. So if you look at the average Wall Street report and the charts in there, they're just like throw up like Excel charts with just default settings and, and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, he, he kind of introduced me to this whole world of data visualization of Edward Tufte of thinking of, uh, you know, how do you present that effectively and how do you convey information? And so even though I'm not a designer, um, I, when I see something, I know kind of like what's wrong with it or where it should be. Um, and so my Michael Vander Rich, he designs the whole platform and, and he and I work, we work together to, to really make sure that it's sort of intuitive in the way it looks. But yeah, my, like one of the reasons that I started Coifin is I thought there's a lot of uh, improvements that could be made on, on graphing and on user interface that older platforms like like Faxon and CapIQ and YCharts and Morningstar who have good data and who um, have pretty good functionality, they just don't have that really uh, effective and powerful data visualization that you would find from like a Tableau or one of these other platforms that's really focused on, on graphing. Um, the the other thing that, um, the, the one software that I think is is really good and that inspired me to start Coifin was TradingView. Like TradingView, I don't know if you, if you huh. used it I haven't. Um, it's 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 focused on charting and, and technical analysis, so it doesn't have the fundamental of the macro stuff, or not as in depth as we do. But when I was starting Coifin, or when I was thinking about Coifin, I started playing around with different platforms, and I found TradingView. I was like, "Wow, this is web based. Like, it's you don't need a terminal, you don't need to download anything. It's super fast. Um, it's lightweight." Um, and basically, I said, "I want that, but for more assets and for more analysis and for more stuff." So. I think they've done a, a really, really good job on the analytics layer as well. They just raised a pretty big uh, round at over a billion valuations, so good for them. Well, I hope that you are on your way to the same thing, sir. One day. Um, yeah. Are you going to, uh, like, do you have a focus on including, you know, conference calls or something on the platform, you know, in the future, or is it going to remain... Uh, what it is today because i think what it is makes a lot of sense it's just kind of interesting you know you see um you know a, a world where i could log into my coifin app and listen to the conference calls or get a transcript or something it could make um you know a lot of a lot of sense for the future as you pull up the transcript <laughs> yeah. we uh as you were talking uh i just kind of shot a note to my team and we just built it uh this, I appreciate is, this is how fast we deliver features so we we do have uh kind of uh transcripts for for every company in the world um so we have kind of like the full transcript that you can see we have all the filings which you can see uh for all the companies and then we have uh news news and significant events so we just started uh, bringing on Reuters news into our platform. So kind of like getting all these results and, and getting these stories. And then the next big product feature we're working on is to be able to search this stuff with, with one field. So, so yeah. if you wanted to search like pricing power or, or whatever term across all these documents. Yeah, and you can bring it up to like all of the times that it's been mentioned or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So seeing that, that visualization as well. So we don't have... Um, we don't have, we actually do have access to MP3s. We haven't uh, integrated that into our system yet. 
Uh, but yeah, we do have the transcripts right now. Okay, I'm gonna say something that I can edit out, but uh, if you want me to keep it, I can keep it too. Because uh, like quarter, mm -hmm. I've been using them to listen to stuff, mm -hmm. and I think that it's a nice offering uh, to be able to, you know, like if I'm, I think it could be a nice addition to the platform because then it's like, oh, I just go to Coifin for everything all the time, mm -hmm. right? And if I need to listen to something, uh, it's just like an additional hook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's also yeah. I've I've, I've um, seen a lot of buzz around quarter. I haven't used the product, uh, but it seems like they've done a good job and kind of like made everything accessible and you can fast forward and, and find stuff. And uh, It's a lot better. Borsa tried to do what Quarter basically, like Borsa started it and then Quarter took over whatever the hell they started. And so that's that. interesting. So I heard of Borsa. Um, what, can you just elaborate on what makes Quarter better than Borsa? I, one, I think uh, something, and uh, I'm just going to assume that we're going to keep some of this, so I apologize to the people that started Borsa because I was a big fan when they started yeah. it. Um, I think that one of the things is what makes Coifin great. They're, the interface when you sign on to the app is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's just like a little bit slicker, and it works as I want it to work. And um, they have the access to... Uh, like any company that I'm looking for, I have immediately. And it, I just, uh, I don't know, man. I, I just think there's just something a little bit better about um, Quarter in almost all the different, like whatever I'm going there for, it's just like a little bit better than what I what I left at Borsa. And I feel bad for saying that, but it's also true. So it's it's like the, the meat and the actual... Um, the, the, the bulk or the core of the offering is, is not all that different, but it's the little thing is it's the access, it's the ability to find stuff that's different and improved. Yeah, I think so. And they do have, they've got like events, uh, unless I'm completely mistaken, but I, I'm almost certain that they have events and I've been waiting for, for events to get on Borsa. And basically like what it became is there was just a small little friction point that came up on Borsa and I was like, oh, I'll just go to quarter. And then I started to use it and I was like, oh, this is legit. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, it's interesting in, and I, I think it is somewhat applicable to what you're doing too, is like what I see you building is where the world is going. And like all you need from a lot of little, you just need a little friction from other people's platforms to get people onto yours and you're going to keep them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think with us, you know, we have sort of uh, one one user persona for us are uh, maybe former institutional investors or maybe financial advisors that today have uh, maybe a shared resource to something like Bloomberg. Um, and so Coifin allows them to kind of customize the system on their own desktop, have their own personal uh, account, obviously. Um, and then the second type of persona are the individuals who've never had a Bloomberg before, haven't had kind of this functionality. Um, and so that kind of like leap or that additional uh, opportunity and functionality is is really uh, an improvement of what they had before. So uh, kind of interesting serving both of those user groups. How'd you get started, man? I, I, re I remember that like maybe it was 2018 or 2019 Everybody on Fintwit started to tweet about Coifin. You got to start using Coifin. Were you uh, 
giving like candy bars to people to try it or what was going on? Yeah, basically recruiting all the uh, all the people in India to tweet about us. Now, you know, I think at a certain point we hit um, kind of critical mass in terms of functionality. Um, and then we had uh, really some kind of early, uh, like early FinTwit ambassadors that I really loved our plat- platform. So Liberty started using our platform pretty early on um, and has yeah. been just a, uh, an incredible supporter. Uh, for a platform and, and just minion uh, minion but but also just uh doing a lot of stuff in the background that most people don't know about so he's just a a really uh, great supporter and, and and friend of Koifin and uh getting feedback and serving as a copywriter and uh, offering advice and making introductions he's great and then Shomik, who um is a a, a fintwit personality um you know I, I met Shomik on twitter and he invested in Koifin. Um, and he, he's brought so much value to us. Like he's, he's, uh, I feel bad that he gave us money cause we should be paying him. Like, <laughs> like I, I feel so, well, feel so bad. I have a feeling if you do your job, you'll end up paying him just yeah, fine, but so. yes, but he's, he's just really, um, he's just always hustling and one of the most pleasant people to talk to and, and super thoughtful. Isn't he so nice? He's so nice and, and it's genuine and it's like, he's, he's just constantly nice and, uh, he's, he's great. He's great. Um, and I think, I think Shomik is the one, uh, was it Elliot or Shomik that introduced us? I think it might've been Elliot that was the catalyst between us, um, like finally yeah. doing the sponsorship, but Shomik had introduced us before God. too. I think it might've been. I, I may have used all my connections to try and break in through to you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, man. I, I think it was, it was super, you know what? I'll tell you what, real talk. And I said this in the read. Um, it made me really like proud that your brand wanted to associate with my brand because to me that, uh, like I really appreciate what you're trying to accomplish and I respect how well you are accomplishing it and I'm trying to accomplish something and to hear that somebody else that I respected, respected me, it, like meant a lot. So thank you for that. No, that's awesome. And, um, so I couldn't have thought of a better first sponsor. Yeah, that's great. And, um, I, you know, the more I, I listen to kind of what you're doing and the way you do it and, and uh, kind of the, um, uh, the the feel uh, and the types of uh, guests that you've had and, and the, your audience is just like, this is this is who we want and this is who we want to be associated with it. And, uh, so it's I'm, I'm really glad that it, it happened and thanks for having us uh, kind of sponsor this season. Yeah, man. Uh, I think, you know, I think that something that um, we're kind of... Uh, I think what we have in common is like there's a way that finance has been done. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, like now it's our time to do it our way. And it's it's fun to iterate on what has come before and then have people accept and enjoy what's coming next. And uh, I don't know how long I'll do this, but I have a feeling that Quayfin's going to be around for a long time. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, if, if I can if I can be long your your brand and your podcast, I would definitely be long it. So. Well, I appreciate it. I don't know how long I want to be it, man. There's a lot of editing and stuff. Like, I can't imagine uh, going through the building pain of what you must have gone through with Koifin to get it to that critical mass. How much more work was it than you thought it would be? Uh, like a thousand times more than, than I thought it was going to be. It's, yeah. it's, a lot, it's a lot of work. And uh, it's a lot of, man, just building a, a product and software. It's really hard. Uh, and um, I, you know, I guess I sort of wanted, like when I, when I was also starting this, I was always uh, 
when I would, I would I try to speak to some VC investors in the beginning and they're like, who's doing this? I'm like, it's me, I'm doing this. And they're like, no way, like we need a team. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm really smart and I can, and now I like, there's just so much to do that if you don't have like an A plus team, like overcoming the odds, you're never going to do it. And um, it's it's just the, the engineering side, the sales side, the operational side, the customer service side, the product side, man, it's, it's all hard, but it's fun. It's, it's nice to, um, you know, to be in a spot where, where we're at and kind of like on the trajectory that we're at. Yeah. I'm at the point now where I need to, uh, like I need a team around me, right? Because it's like, man, to, to do the edits and to do the research, I, I'm like, I don't do anything else. Right. And then it's like, I'm doing booking and it's just gotten, uh, it was one thing when it was a fun hobby, but to go to the next stage, I mean, I, I've realized like you just can't do it alone. There's no way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm sure it's a lot harder for you than it is for me. I have an audio show that I pop on. No, I, I mean, you have to, you know, you have to think about like uh, acquisition and you have to think about marketing and you have to think about like, the operational stuff and the endings. I mean, I mean, I'm sure it's, I'm, I'm sure it's a lot of work. It's, it's enough work for several people. So, uh, I don't know how you do it by yourself. How are you thinking about the next leg of growth for you? Yeah, so you know, we just started. Uh, we just started monetizing. We were a free platform until June. Um, we introduced our paid plans, and and that's been converting nicely. So uh, we are kind of growing at about fifteen percent a month over the past several months. Um, and then we're looking to do our Series A uh, pretty soon, so we've been starting to uh, talk to investors about that. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're in a really interesting space. Um, there's a lot of things that are changing, a lot of things that are being disrupted. Um, I think this whole concept of there being a professional product and a retail product, um, I think that's that's a really uh, interesting thing to try and disrupt in terms of having a product that's sort of more prosumer, having a product that hedge fund managers are using as well as individuals, um, even though we do have more individuals using it than, than, uh, than pros. And so it's, it's, it's kind of cool. So our, our next phase of growth is to basically expand the team, build the product faster and to think about kind of like acquiring and, and distributing, um, in a little bit, uh, uh, more scalable way. Yeah. I mean, it's clear to me from who I talk to that pros are using it. So it's the, the issue for you has got to just be, how do I get more people on the platform? And then how do you figure out what to charge? Um, how was it, how was it moving from a free product to the charge product? Right. Because sometimes moving upstream like that is, uh, is slightly difficult. You want to put something more exciting on the screen than curate. I think people are probably a little tired of that. I'll, I'll go to, I'll go to the homepage where we have some, do whatever you yeah, want. So, just so, got so, old so, curate so, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's 2014, just trying to, you know, demonstrate the breadth of our data. Um, it's so ch charging was, was really an interesting experience. Uh, we basically, um, want to, like, I, I, I'm always, uh, just self-conscious about our product and just like, we need more, we need more, we need more before we start charging. And the advice I've always gotten from other founders, like start charging early, just see what people pay for. And I'm like, no, 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 we need more product, more product, more product. Um, and once we started charging, we just learned a ton about what users will pay for, what they're using, what they're not using. Uh, and huh. we had so many, like, we had so many people using our product that just were never going to pay us. And 
um, and, and it's because they're just like students or individuals who are just like, you know, $35 a month. That's a lot of money when I'm paying $10 for Netflix. Um, and that's probably been the biggest source of pushback since we introduced our paid plans. Can I just say something yeah. real quick? If people are comping the amount of spend that they're spending on a financial product to what they're spending on fucking entertainment, their minds are wrong. Like, this is what I got. And I'm not saying that I'm worth this super follow thing on Twitter. I'm not saying that. But, like, I, I set my price at $9.99, and people were like, dude, that's Netflix. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, first of all, if you don't value what I'm putting out as much as Netflix, like, that's fine, but you don't need to pay me. But, like, this is – I think I'm bringing some decent value to people. If you get one thought for – the $35 a month off Coifin, that could save you so much money in a trade. Like, what are you, you can't comp it to watching Squid Game or whatever. It's insane. Yeah. So it's, that's, so that's exactly how I thought about it with our pricing. I was like, look, we find you one trade, we save you kind of like one mistake a year and that pays for itself. So here, yeah. here's the, here's the, here's like the, here's 10 times so here's over. the pushback and kind of like the other, the flip side of the argument, which is interesting. So one is you have a lot of individuals who are starting out who are just managing 500 hours, a thousand, 2000, 3000. And so paying 400 hours versus a hundred hours is actually a big percentage of their portfolio. So like, I am sympathetic to that. argument. So that's, that, that's kind of interesting. Like I never, I was just like, look, like the average person has $50,000 or a hundred thousand, but there's just like a big distribution. And particularly over the past year, when so many new investors have gotten into, into investing, that that's a big difference. So you can sort of see that. The second thing, which is really interesting is individuals don't value analytics as much as they do recommendations. And so like one of the things that um, mm. is interesting that we hear from like individuals, like, look, I pay 400 hours for this service or that service to tell me what to buy, but to pay for a service that provides analytics, like I'm not sure if that's valuable to me. And that's like a, like that, that thought, I have to like really think about it, but it's just so different than what I'm used to and what you're used to in terms of like what you use a system like this for. And that's kind of like how beginners think about it. It's like, hey, I'm paying $400 or $500 for someone to tell me what to buy. And they're providing value by actually giving me trade recommendations versus giving me data and analytics that I'm not sure, like it's cool and I'm finding things, but they haven't associated that value yet, even though they think there's something there. That's crazy to me. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that it's wrong and I, I kind of, I kind of get it, but that is so insane to me because fundamentally, if you're actually buying something, right, then you're you're saying like I can outthink the market or something. I think that's what you have to logically say to yourself. So to then rely on someone else's trading system, but not like want the data to analyze the decisions yourself is insane to yeah. me. That makes no sense. Just go index and like stop paying anything and go do something else with your life. I mean, that's why Motley Fool has uh, half a billion dollars of revenue a year. You know, I just interviewed. Oh, him. yeah? Yeah, uh, which I was super happy to be able to do. Um, really, really interesting mm -hmm. guy. I didn't, I, I interviewed David, not Tom. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, man, uh, they got a good thing going. And I said to him, I said, you know, that my, my hesitation coming to the Motley Fool was the, the marketing right? Like I just didn't quite, I saw we bought Amazon at a dollar mm -hmm. and I was like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> you know? 
some of it's a function of the strategy he runs, but but the pushback that he had, or not pushback, but the um, explanation that he had to me, which I, I found compelling, is he was like, the problem is, like, I actually did that and I actually held Amazon. But there's a lot of people on the internet that say that they bought it, but they sold it at like a buck fifty. And it's hard to um, convey that point in ad- in internet advertising, mm-hmm. right? Like it's so it's just kind of a nature of the beast. But I thought that was kind of an interesting That's, comment that he had. The, C- the CFA might have issues with that. How that performance was measured. Well, yeah, I think um, yeah, that's a fair comment. Yes, um, it's but it's uh, like I like I started trading in the investing in the nineties when I was in high school, um, and I remember the Motley Fool like started to publish, and I was reading them, and uh, I remember kind of like the there there was like the first stock I ever read on their platform was Bell Bell FB is a like Canadian supplier that they were writing about the valuation. I still remember it thirty years later. So, all right. So, do we need to get we need to get you like a seeking alpha type uh, recommendation engine, and then we'll charge eighty dollars a month, and I'll part be part of your series. Yeah, a. That's that's exactly right. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's. I mean, look at the end of the day, you gotta like you gotta solve a problem for people, and um, I think it's it's a really interesting point in terms of like I, I think like the way the way I interpret it is I think we have to um, provide more conclusions to people rather than. Uh, just information hmm. and data. And so what I'm thinking through is like, how do we um, how do we get to that endpoint in terms of like just telling people what's expensive, what's cheap, what's outperforming, instead of giving them the tools to do that. And I think like having both is important. So um, like what we're going to do is really like percentile rank a bunch of different variables like valuation and growth and momentum and short interest, and really allow people to kind of get a quick view of of what you know not a recommendation per se but just really kind of like the conclusion of stuff in, in really direct ways and i think that's going to be pretty interesting for our audience i i have no idea if you get this pushback from people generally but um the other thing that i i have always associated you with visualization so like when i ask the transcript question i i go to like some other source for the transcript mm-hmm. so like tying, I don't know, somehow like getting rewiring my all of my uh, my habits to Coifin is because it's so distributed right now, right? So that's uh, it's an interesting problem to have to tackle. Yeah, and we have so much functionality and data on our platform, and constantly hear or constantly see from users that they just don't know what's on there. Um, and like yeah. the way Bloomberg solves this is they put a rep on every customer's like office. Like there's a there's a Bloomberg rep in, in on the city on the Citigroup trading desk that was walking around every single day on that trading desk, helping people discover stuff. Um, huh. And uh, you know, with us, like whenever I I speak with users and even users that are like power users that have been with us for four years, and I show them stuff, they're like, "Wow, how, like how was I supposed to know that's there?" And I'm just like, "Ah, we like that's that's pretty challenging, and we need to do a better job of just educating people in terms of what's there and how to use stuff." Do you have uh, have you ever toyed at all with the idea of having like um, some sort of community feature where it becomes message boardy or not really? We we do have um, we do have something uh, like that in the feedback form. So if I click on feedback, we have kind of like general questions and and and, and stuff like that and feature suggestions. 
Um, and, and so people kind of like comment on this and will reply. So there is that sense. Um, I think what, what um, you know, I think what, what we want to do or figure out a way is for uh, like a news article that comes out or a transcript, just having a thread where people can comment. Um, yeah, that would be cool. And then you could have different people discussing takeaways in sort of a longer form. Uh, but it was tied there or whatever. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, that's something we'll definitely play around with. Because Shomik was talking to me about doing this at the pod, right? Like, how do you how do you create a community around uh, the podcast or the platform or whatever you're trying to do? And um, I'm still not sure exactly what the answer is to that. Yeah, for for my particular situation. Yeah, big picture, it sounds like a great idea. Just kind of hard to like. How do you? Yeah, that's right. It's like cool, man. If yeah. you could, if you could make sure that uh, you tell me exactly how to execute it, yeah. get it done, and then have people come on, that would be awesome. Yeah, you know, it's pretty easy, but just create a social network around your audience. That's how right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, I don't know, man. It's uh, it's fun to build this stuff, though. I I have never created anything before this, and I haven't created anything near what you have. I think it it would be very rewarding to have a ton of users and and get feedback that like your visualization in your head uh came to fruition the closest thing that i have uh found myself is somebody said i view your show as like uh if i was at a bar i get to eavesdrop on a conversation of of people that i think are pretty interesting and i was like that's exactly what i mean that's why i'm holding the scotch glass and the album art like that's that's the whole purpose of what it was supposed to be. But, so it's like, yeah, somebody gets me. But 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 even like you know your, your show just having thousands and thousands of like if you're just like like if you're physically talking to you know ten thousand people that just like imagine in the stadium you're just like hey let's have a conversation in front of ten thousand people like <laughs> and 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 you're yeah. doing that like every you know every every single week and just broadcasting and I'm sure you have like viewers and listeners in every single country. I know, I know people have reached out to Koifin because of your show from uh, a lot of different countries. So I know you have a pretty international audience. Well, good. I'm glad that I could help get the word out, man. It, it, uh, you know, it really did mean a lot to me. So I'm glad that it worked out. Um, what do you, do you want to, do you want to talk about anything else? I'm, I'm here for you, man. So you tell me. No, I, th- I mean, I think, I think we covered everything. I'd love to, I'm going to provide a, um, a, a discount link to the um, in the show notes and in the um, kind of wherever you think it's appropriate to put. So giving anyone who's listening 20% off of Coifin uh, for any plan. And so we don't really discount. Uh, and, uh, but uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty important to, to do it for you. So if anyone has not signed up yet, uh, feel free to use that discount code and get 20% off. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I will promote that in the uh, in the pre-show read and we'll drop it in the show notes. And I appreciate you uh, coming on, man. It's been fun to get to know you and it's been a fun chat. Cool. Thanks so much. How was the reception to our pod where people are like, what was this dude doing? He's talking about pot stocks and curate. It, it was great. It was great. I, I mean, yeah. I, I think like, you know, uh, I would just normal kind of like uh, didn't hear anything. I think I think with us we we went on a bunch of different tangents. Uh, yeah, we did. I think, I think I think some of the other guests were like very kind of uh, you know housekeeping and, and uh, talking about their trade ideas, where we just started kind of like uh, going off. Yeah, I had a good time, man. Uh, so I look forward to seeing you. You're uh, you're a little bit south of me, right? Still, you're like there permanently. Miami right? Beach, absolutely. Yeah, I'm gonna come down uh, in not too long. So hopefully we can. Uh, 
either get some cocktails or some coffee or whatever. But uh, I'd love to meet you in person. I'd love that. All right, man. Thank you very much, and uh, have a great Thanks, day. Thanks, you too.